On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. We bring out the Christmas lights and decorations and our CDs of Christmas hymns and carols. It's a special time of celebration with family and friends, and we enjoy uh, lots of good food, sometimes too much good food, and, and there's the giving of gifts to those we love, and, and we enjoy all of those things, as we certainly should. And for many, some of the fondest childhood memories are memories of Christmas. And I, I remember as a child <laughs> at Christmas time looking through the, the Sears and Roebuck catalog and all the things that, you know, I wish for at Christmas. Some of you probably can remember the same thing. Maybe it was the J.C. Penney catalog or Montgomery Wards, but we always looked through the catalog and, and made a list of the things we wished for. I'm the oldest of five children. I have three younger sisters and a younger brother. And I remember Christmas Eve and just the great anticipation of Christmas morning when we would finally get to open our gifts. I mean, we could barely go to sleep at night, and then we were usually up in the early morning hours, long, long before my parents ever wanted us to get out of bed. And you know, in at the tree, looking at the gifts and trying to figure out whose was what and shaking them, trying to figure out what it was. And I'm, I'm still convinced to this day that my sister Kathy was the instigator of all of this, but um, I'm not quite sure that uh, she would agree with that, but that's the story I'm sticking to. But then I remember when our children were little, I mean, it was the same thing the wishing for certain gifts, the eager anticipation up early in the morning. And, and it was always such a blessing and a great joy to, to give them gifts and then be able to watch them open them with delight. And then as time went on, it was Barbara and I with anticipation, uh, you know, waiting for our grandchildren to arrive so we could celebrate Christmas and watch them open their gifts. So I have very fond memories of, of Christmas. But I know that there are many that, don't have such fond memories. And, and that's sad to me, but it's the truth. And the point of all of, of the nostalgia is that Christmas is a wonderful and, and joyful season. But as memorable and, and enjoyable as the Christmas season and all of these other things are, we know that these are not the reason that we celebrate Christmas. I mean, that's not what Christmas is all about. Certainly, it's, it's, it's a part of it, but that's not what Christmas is all about. Well, what then is Christmas all about? Well, someone will say it's about the birth of Christ. We're celebrating his birth, and, and that would be absolutely correct. But we would also have to say it's about much more than simply Christ's birth. We're celebrating Christ's incarnation. And the virgin birth was, was simply the means by which the incarnation was accomplished, the means God used to send his son into the world as a man. And so what we're celebrating at Christmas is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things, entered his own creation. I mean, God became a man in order to be our Savior. And this is what gives Christmas meaning. And not only that, this is what gives history and our lives meaning as well. And although the New Testament doesn't command or obligate Christians to celebrate Christmas, as one man said, the wisdom of the church throughout the ages suggests 
that if we do not celebrate the incarnation of Christ deliberately at some point in the year, we may be in danger of doing it all too rarely and perhaps not at all. And I think he's exactly right. And so this morning, I want us to look at the amazing, uh, mysterious subject of the incarnation. Literally, it is the infleshing, the infleshing of God's own Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to John chapter 1. We're only going to be looking at three verses from John 1 this morning. First, in verses 1 to 2, we'll see John declares the deity of Christ. And then secondly, in verse 14, we'll see John declaring the humanity of Christ. So John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read those three verses. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then John 1, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. So we'll look first of all at John's declaration of the deity of Christ in verses 1 and 2. Now, when we think of of passages in the Bible that deal with the birth of Christ, we usually don't think of the Gospel of John. And the reason we don't is because John begins his Gospel in a different place than the other Gospel writers. Matthew begins uh, with Abraham, and Luke begins with Adam. But unlike Matthew and Luke, John does not begin his Gospel with a genealogy or an account of the nativity, but he does tell us a whole lot about Christmas. John knew of those beginnings, but he tells us there's another deeper and more mysterious beginning to the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, we would have to say that of all the gospel writers, John is the one who gives us the greatest and largest vision of what it meant for the Lord Jesus to come into this world. Because you see, John takes us back further than the nativity account and further than the genealogy. He takes us back further than the opening verses of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, which say, in the beginning. He takes us back further than that. Look at verse 1, where John writes, in the beginning was the Word. And of course, we know that the Word is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say, in the beginning was the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, John affirms the eternal preexistence of Christ. Now, you Star Wars fans will remember that the original Star Wars movie began with the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? But here in our text, John wants us to know that long ago, in fact, in eternity past, far, far away, far beyond all of the galaxies that exist, and astronomers now believe there are some two trillion galaxies stretching out over 90 billion light years. So far beyond all of the galaxies that exist, when you get beyond those in the heaven of God, in heaven, Jesus existed before creation or even time because he has always existed. 
There was never a point when Jesus came into being. There never was a time when he was not. He has always existed because he is the eternal God. That's what John is telling us. And certainly the human flesh of Jesus came into being at a certain point in time and in a particular place. But behind that is the incomprehensible truth that Jesus as the Word, the eternal Son of God, has existed forever as God, with God. And that is why all the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus used the title for himself that God the Father used to declare himself to be the eternally preexistent God. You'll remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly said, I am. He said to uh, the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. He only spoke of himself in the present continuous sense because there was never a time when he did not exist. Now try to wrap your head around that. That's, that's pretty, that's meaty stuff. John says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Christ. And the Word, or Christ, was with God. The word with that John uses here literally means toward. And it's better translated face to face. And it means far more than merely that the Word existed with God. Oh no, it's, it's far more than that. It, it gives the picture of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in deep, intimate fellowship and communion. So what we have depicted here is the fellowship of one person of the Trinity with another person of the Trinity. I mean, John is telling us that before the creation of the world, before any matter or particles ever came into existence, the Word, God the Son, was... And he was in intimate fellowship, communion, and perfect harmony with God the Father. And there has always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Trinity. The Father with the Son, the Son with the Father, the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit. I mean, we are talking about a spiritual unity and oneness, the likes of which we cannot even begin to comprehend. We're talking about the same loves, the same goals, the same values, perfect communication, unbelievable understanding and love and, and affection. You know, here we have the perfectly holy persons of the Godhead with mutually exhaustive knowledge of one another. They love one another utterly. They, they give themselves to one another utterly. The Word, Jesus, existed from all eternity and has face-to-face -face fellowship and communion with God the Father and God the Spirit continually. And in the final part of verse 1, John says, and the Word and Christ was God. The Word was God. And John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. He is absolutely affirming that Jesus is God. And nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may rightly be said about the Word or about Jesus, and, and this statement should never be watered down. The Word was God, and this could not get simpler, and it could not get any more profound. The Word, Jesus Christ, was and is fully God. 
And John sums up this teaching by saying in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. The second verse just underscores the truth that the Word coexisted with the Father from before the beginning. And so John is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus has always and continually existed as God from all eternity. And John doesn't stop to try and explain it. Because how do you explain what cannot be explained? So don't anybody ask me at the door to please explain this. (laughs) But John, without any embarrassment, without any apology, without any attempt at explanation, simply says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's quite a statement. And two quick thoughts here. These opening words of John's gospel should really encourage us to understand that we should never make the mistake of thinking it is a small thing that the eternal word, the Son of God, who was himself God, who was face-to-face with God and enjoyed unhindered, unbroken fellowship with God, came into our world. We should never think that a small or insignificant thing. And then number two, These opening words also should encourage us to understand that we should never make the mistake of thinking it is a small thing to become a believer in Jesus Christ. One man said, to come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is both the grandest and the largest and the most mind-stretching reality of human existence. Because the one who was in the beginning face to face with God, the one who has made all things and upholds them by the word of his power, is the one who came face to face with us. And this is no small thing. In fact, it is of eternal significance. And so John wants us to know that Jesus is and has always been truly and fully God, so that his name is rightly called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. But someone may wonder, well, why is the deity of Christ so vitally important? Well, first of all, only someone who is the infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. Second, salvation is from the Lord, according to Scripture. And the whole message of the Bible is designed to show that no human being, no creature could ever save man. Only God himself could. And then thirdly, only someone who was truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man, both to bring us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us. You see, if Jesus is not fully God, then we have no salvation and ultimately no Christianity. And so John, first of all, declares the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, secondly, John declares the humanity of Christ, and that's in verse 14. 
He wants us to realize that before that first Christmas, Jesus had been, from eternity past, a divine son and second person of the Godhead. He was God's agent in creation, and from the beginning of time, he has upheld the universe at every moment. But then came the great condescension and, and the great addition. In other words, then came our Lord's humbling incarnation. And we see this in verse 14. The, the great Christmas passage. Look at it. and look, look at what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word. I mean, think of it. The Word. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who looked directly into the face of the Father without mediation and who dwelt with His Father. He became flesh. And He dwelt among us. I mean, this is the wonder of the Incarnation. This is the almost unbelievable thing God the Son did for us. He became what He was not. In the greatest act of condescension the world has ever and will ever see, the eternal God and the person of the Son humbled Himself and willingly stepped out of eternity into time. He condescended to a degree that we cannot begin to fathom to become a man. The Word became flesh. I mean, those four words express the reality that in the Incarnation, God took upon Himself humanity. And we must understand that the Incarnation did not begin at Bethlehem. Oh, no. No, the Incarnation began nine months earlier when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and implanted within her womb the divine human person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And something important to understand about that is that Mary was altogether passive. She actively contributed nothing to the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that took place in the conception of Jesus, Mary experienced mysteriously, unknowingly, and passively apart from any human effort. I mean, she had to be told about it by an angel, right? You say, well, why is this important? Because it shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. Just as God had promised that the seed of the woman would ultimately destroy the serpent, so God brought it about by His own power, not through mere human power. And the virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort, but must be the work of God Himself. Our salvation only comes about through the supernatural work of God and, and this was evident from the very beginning in Jesus' life when God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But the point here is simply that Jesus was God incarnate from the moment of conception. You see, it's not the birth of Jesus that was miraculous. No, his birth was completely natural. His birth was like the birth of any other baby that's ever been born, and it was just as uncomfortable and, and painful for Mary as it has been for every other woman who has ever had a baby. What is miraculous is Jesus' conception. The Word of God affirms that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
This miraculous conception made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Jesus' conception was a sovereign act of God as the eternal Word of God became flesh, real human flesh, real human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I mean, think about that. Jesus, who is God, spent his first nine months on earth as a preborn baby, fully alive, fully human, fully God in the womb of Mary. In a book our Women's Fellowship went through six or seven years ago, author Elise Fitzpatrick wrote this. Within the darkness of the virgin's womb, the eternal word entered an ovum and took to himself from her body chromosomes, blood, flesh, and bone. The word who was made flesh gestated within her for nine months. God relied on a weak young girl to sustain his life. She ate and drank and nourished this embryo, who is also the Lord of heaven and earth, from the limited resources of her own little body. In his humanity, he knew the restraint of living within a uterus, completely confined in deep darkness. He felt it when his mother labored, and although he did not understand the process, like every infant before him, he struggled to be free and to breathe. He was born, placenta and all, as he came forth from the virgin's womb, a strange shrine for our God. He is like us in every way. He knows what it is to be born and live our life. Physically, he experienced cold and hunger. He needed his diaper changed. Mary nursed him, and his life was sustained by her milk. And contrary to the Christmas carol, the baby Jesus cried, because babies cry. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, spent his first nine months on earth in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then was born through the natural birth process in Bethlehem. And it was the humblest of beginnings. One man put it this way. The one who has always been face to face with his father now stared into the face of his teenage mother. The one whom the heavens cannot contain was contained in a place where livestock was kept and was cradled in an animal's feeding trough. God became a man. It's utterly astounding. And it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. It is the miracle of miracles. It is the greatest miracle the universe has ever or will ever see. And so at the very heart of Christianity, is the fact of the incarnation, that Jesus is God in human flesh. He was and is a real and genuine man. And this is no insignificant matter. Jesus' humanity is the most essential doctrine in the Christian faith. In fact, it's one of the first tests of orthodoxy. In 1 John 4, 2, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then in 2 John 7, John writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. 
Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's the most essential doctrine in the Christian faith, the first test of orthodoxy, but it's also one of the great mysterious facts of the Christian faith. I mean, mysterious in the sense that we cannot fully understand it. And that is why the Apostle Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Christ, was manifest in the flesh. The Word, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. In Christ, God took on human flesh. The, the Creator entered His creation to become like one of his creatures. I mean, this is the meaning of Christmas. I mean, God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and became a man. How do you explain that? How do you explain the incarnation? How do you explain a virgin conception? How do you explain that the eternal God became a man? Well, you don't because you can't. And that's why John doesn't even try. I mean, how could he? He simply states the fact that God the Son, the eternal Word, became flesh. He became a man. And so in the face of all of this, what do we do? Well, all we can do is what the wise men from the east did. They bowed down before him and worship. In Jesus, God took on human flesh. But we have to be careful here. Because that could be a little misleading. Understood wrongly, it could give you the idea that Jesus' humanity was just a matter of skin, that God put on a human hide like you or I might put on a coat, and, and that was the extent of his humanity. But that's not the case. The essence of humanity is not merely skin, it's much deeper than that. The word flesh here refers to the whole of human nature, both body and soul. I mean, this tells us Jesus was human all the way to the core, in every way. When the Word became flesh, when Jesus took on full humanity, He didn't merely become human in part. He became fully, truly human. I mean, it's clear from the New Testament that Jesus had a human body, just like our human bodies. In fact, He was so fully human that those who saw Him those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even the brothers he grew up with didn't realize he was anything more than another very good human being. They had no idea that he was God in human flesh. I mean, Jesus is like us in every respect. He had a human body, emotions, mind, and will. Jesus' human nature was subject to hunger, thirst, weakness, tiredness, temptation, and death. He is like us in every respect but one. He was without sin. He became a real man, yet he was a sinless, perfect man. I mean, how amazing that the divine Son of God would not just take on part of our humanity, but all of it. So he's not part God and part human. He's not a mixture of, of God and human, or even something halfway between God and human. He is God, and He is human. Not God and a man, but the God-man. Jesus is utterly 
unique. He is fully divine, yet fully human. One person with two natures. He is God, and he is man. But we also have to be careful here. Because the fact that Jesus became a man does not mean that he ceased to be God. Rather, it means that to his eternal deity, Jesus added perfect humanity. Oh, he voluntarily restricted the use of some of his divine attributes and and the full display of his glory, although it shone forth on occasions, but not always. But the point is that he did not lay aside his deity or cease to be God in any way. Not in any way. Rather, he added complete humanity to his eternal deity. But the deity of Christ is not diminished by his humanity, nor is his humanity overpowered by his deity. You see, the problem is that we're prone to think of divinity and humanity in mutually exclusive terms. So we might think if he became man, he must have ceased in some sense to be God. But then we come to a text like Philippians 2.7 that he emptied himself. And we ask, did he empty himself of attributes of deity? And one commentator explained that text in this way. The expression, he emptied himself, is not what he emptied himself of. It is an idiomatic way of saying he became a nobody. He humbled himself completely, not only to become a human being, but to go all the way to the ignominy, I always mess that word up, ignominy and shame and torture of the cross. It's talking about the astonishing, unequal, unimaginable, indescribable self-humiliation and becoming human and then going so far not only to be a slave, but a slave who dies on the cross. God, the person of the Son, our Lord Jesus, in the person of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, became flesh without abandoning any of what it means to be God. And he took on all that it means to be human. So friends, the the incarnation does not mean that God dwelt in a man, but that God became man. He became what he was not previously, though he never ceased to be all that he was before. In other words, remaining what he was, fully divine, he also became what he previously had not been fully human as well. He is the God-man. He is fully and uniquely God as well as being fully and perfectly man. And he lived his whole life among men as the Word become flesh, living as one person but functioning according to two different natures and two wills, one divine and one human. And in his divine nature, he was the creator and sustainer of the universe. And when he came into the world, he continued to sustain the world into which he had come. Yet in his human nature, he was just like us in every respect except sin. Jesus Christ is fully and uniquely God and fully and perfectly man at the same time in the same person. And he lived his life according to those two natures in order that he might become our Savior. 
What condescension. I mean, what humiliation. I mean, think of it. Jesus came from from the glory into the weakness of the virgin's womb and into the sinfulness of our world. And we have no idea. I mean, we're, we're not at all able to understand what that meant for Jesus to come down from the highest heaven into this sinful world because we have such a little grasp of who he really is and what holiness is and goodness. Well, we, we, don't, we don't even have a grasp on what that's like. You know, what, what heaven must be and what sin actually is. But as much as it is possible, John wants us to grasp the magnitude of Jesus being in the presence of holy God and then leaving the glories of heaven, becoming a man, and living in the presence of sinful men and women. And we need to hear this again and again. We need to hear again and again that Jesus, the eternal Word of God, who dwelt in the presence of His heavenly Father, surrounded by angels, archangels, cherubim, and seraphim, who are continually crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This Jesus, He is the one who came from that world into the darkness of the virgin's womb. He humbled himself and became a man, was born into the darkness of a sinful, broken, and needy world. And then at the end of his life, in the darkness of the cross, suffered the Father's wrath as he offered himself to his Father as a sacrifice for our sins. That's the amazing and comprehensible truth at the center of what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation. Jesus, God Himself, adding humanity to His deity so that He might rescue us from our soul-destroying rebellion and lavish us with the everlasting enjoyment that we were created for. The Word became flesh. One man said the plain meaning of these words is that our divine Savior really took human nature upon Him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things, sin only accepted. Like ourselves, he was born of a woman, though conceived in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Like ourselves, he hungered, thirsted, ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, he prayed, read the Scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted his human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, he really suffered and shed his blood, really died, was really buried, really rose again, and really ascended up into heaven. And yet all this time, he was God as well as man. Jesus took upon himself our full human nature. And he is fully and completely man except for sin. And here's the thing. What is equally amazing is the fact that this is not just a temporary reality. You see, from that miraculous moment when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he will never cease to be human. He is forever both God and man in one person. You realize what this means? 
It means that right now, sitting on the throne in heaven, is Jesus Christ, the God-man. And when you and I see the Lord Jesus in heaven, he will be exactly the same God-man that he was when he walked on earth in the post-resurrection glorified body that he had when he spent 40 days with the disciples before he ascended to heaven. And he will still bear the scars of his crucifixion. So you see, Jesus didn't just put on human skin like a coat only to take it off again when he got home to heaven. He became man, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for all eternity, age after age, Jesus is God and man and always will be. And as one man said, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Throughout eternity, Jesus will be who he was on earth, fully God, fully man, in one person, never again to be separated. I mean, it's just beyond our ability to comprehend. And take just a moment, if you will, and and try to imagine how much the Son of God must have loved us to decide that, yes, he would become a human forever. I mean, he had existed for all eternity. The second person of the Trinity, in perfect, harmonious, and beautiful relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit, and yet he decided to become man, knowing that when he did, he would never not be human Again. And there is only one thing that could lead the very Son of God to do that. He deeply loves us. And he surely does. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he loved us and what? Gave himself for us. I mean, Christmas is about the glorious scandal of God's awe-inspiring love for us and for the world. And this is the love made manifest in the birth of a helpless baby so long ago. I mean, a love that continues to promise that in Jesus Christ, God has come to be with us and for us now and forever, because he truly is Emmanuel, you know, God with us. The Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity took an additional nature to himself for the sake of our salvation. And that's why the incarnation is so vitally important. The wages of our sin is death. And for Jesus to pay that, he had to be a real man. A real man, a real human being had to pay that. Not an angel, but a real human being. He must, as a man, a sinless man, come and die for men. And if Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due to us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become a man, not an angel, because God was concerned with saving men, not saving angels. 
But to do this, he had to be made like us in every way except sin, so that he might be the perfect sinless sacrifice that is, was acceptable to God as a substitute for us. And so in order to be our substitute, in order to be our mediator, he took on our flesh to live the life that Adam failed to live, the life that we could never live, and then to die the death that we deserve. But on the other hand, if he had only, uh, he not only had to be man, he had to be God as well, because only someone who is infinite could bear the full penalty for God's holy wrath for all the sins of those who would ever believe in him. A finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. And because he was God, Jesus' death and his blood had infinite value and sufficient to cover all the sins of sinners. And that is why in Acts chapter 20 we're told the church is something that God purchased with his own blood. And so what is the blood of God worth? Well, what's, what's the value of the blood of God? Well, it's of infinite value, infinite value. And so here in our text, the Apostle John is, is giving us the behind-the-scenes stories of Christmas. And this is the greatest, the most important event in the history of the world. In fact, in cosmic history, the Word, the eternal Creator, became one of His creatures. The Son of God became man. Again, it is an incomprehensible mystery that we accept the truth of Scripture, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And yet, as inexplicable as it is that God became a man, because so many of us have heard it from childhood, we can hear it now and read it and yet often remain unmoved in fact, some of us are so familiar with Jesus that we're no longer impressed by him and what he has done. And that, loved ones, is a very, very dangerous place to be. John says back in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son not only became man, he also dwelt among us for a brief time. And for 33 years, he lived in this world among men. And we sing about this at Christmas, don't we? You know, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And it really is quite, I mean, it's just unbelievable that God himself stepped out of the most privileged place there is, heaven, and took on flesh and blood and came and walked and dwelt among us knowing who we are. I mean, do you realize what a trial it must have been for the holy, sinless Son of God just to dwell in this sinful world? and to live and move among sinful people? I mean, it must have vexed his holy soul. John says, we've seen his glory. 
glory as it really is, the glory of the only or unique Son of God, full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. And that's such wonderful news because if God dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. His grace offers love and compassion to guilty sinners. His truth means that he warns of God's judgment if sinners do not repent and believe in him. And grace and truth, of course, reach their culmination at the cross where the truth of God's holiness and justice was satisfied in the death of the perfect substitute so that now he can offer grace to guilty sinners like you and I who trust in Christ alone for salvation. And it is only by believing the truth as it is in Jesus Christ that you can experience God's grace and forgiveness. And since Jesus is full of grace, you can come to him and and know that, that he will welcome you. He has never turned away one repentant sinner. And then because he's full of truth, you can trust his promises. You can trust his word. The Lord Jesus Christ became flesh in order to become our gracious Savior. He came in order to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So I think we can safely say that the truth about Christmas is really contained in the first phrase of verse 14. The Word became flesh. And that's what Christmas is all about. We're celebrating the truth that the child born in Bethlehem is none other than the living God in human flesh come to reveal himself to us so that in the person of Jesus Christ, the unknowable becomes knowable, the invisible becomes visible, the transcendent becomes intimate, the untouchable becomes touchable, the unreachable becomes embraceable. Think about it. The almightiness of God moved in a human arm. The love of God beat in a human heart. The wisdom of God spoke from human lips, and and the mercy of God reached forth from human hands. God was always a God of love, but when Jesus came to the earth, the God of love and the love of God was manifested in human flesh. And who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story, is the Lord, the King of glory. And so, loved ones, that's the Christmas story according to John. That's the behind-the-scenes story of what really happened 2,000 years ago when the one who came to save us from our sins was conceived by the Holy Spirit and then born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Again, this is what we celebrate, what we as Christians celebrate at Christmas. God himself. The eternal God in the second person of the Trinity took on humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, not by losing any of his divinity, but by adding humanity to himself. He became man for us and for our salvation. I mean, it really is just a a stunning reality that God did this for us in Jesus Christ. And so what should our response be to this incredible truth? Well, it ought to make us thankful for one thing, right? 
but it should also lead us to bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him deeply as our Savior. And it should lead us to lift up our hearts and our voices in praise of a God who can come from the infinite distance and glories of heavens down to a world such as ours, taking on full humanity in order that he might redeem us and lead us back to himself. I mean, does that mean anything to you personally? Do you know what it is to come and to bow down and to worship him? Is he your God? I mean, perhaps not. And if that's the case, you must understand that apart from the grace of God, we all stand before uh, the most tremendous truths of God's word, unaffected and indifferent. Yet we should respond to them. But according to Romans 1, we suppress the truth about God. And we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We give our hearts to created things, but refuse to give them to the Creator. And ultimately, we become self-deceived and we encourage others to join us in our sin and we keep suppressing the truth that we cannot face, namely that deep down we know that there is a God because we see his attributes and power in creation and we know that we are created in his image and that we are accountable to him. But we pretend to ourselves and to others that, that all is well when in fact all is ultimately lost apart from Christ. You see, the problem for all of those who have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation is that they are spiritually blind and they need light. They're spiritually deaf and they need to hear the voice of Jesus calling. And they're spiritually dead in need of of new life. but they can't help themselves. They need help from outside of themselves. And so the question is this, is there anyone out there who can help them? Yes, there is. Jesus Christ can, can't he? As the prophet Isaiah said, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he not only shines light into into your darkness, he will tell you where more light is to be found. He himself is the light. And when he shines the light of his gospel into our lives, we, we come to life. And this is the promise. I mean, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but still have the light, but will have the light of life. You know, today, most of the people in the United States celebrate Christmas. There are some groups that don't. But generally speaking, most people in the United States celebrate Christmas. I mean, they, they love the festivities. They love to hear the Christmas music, even to sing the, the, filial, uh, the familiar Christmas hymns and carols. But their hearts go cold when they hear about the true meaning of Christmas. Their hearts grow cold when they hear that Jesus came into the world for a reason, and that is to save sinners. And their response is, whether they say it or not, 
Let's sing the songs, but don't talk to us about being saved from sin. You know, let us enjoy Christmas with all that talk about Christ as Savior. I mean, for crying out loud, can't you just leave us alone and let us enjoy the holiday? Why all this talk about Jesus? Because that's the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is seeking, finding, trusting, and worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't worship a sentiment at Christmas. We worship God. And the baby in the manger isn't just a cute and cuddly infant in his mother's arms. He is God in human flesh, born so that he might die to save us from our sins. And so in the, in, in the true, very truest sense, I mean, Christmas is not coming because it's already come. Because the Word already has been made flesh. He has already lived, bled, died, and risen again for us. So now all that remains is to receive Him, right? As John said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Him, who believed... What does that mean to receive Him? Well, he tells us, who believed in His name. So to all who did receive him, that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we encourage you to do so this very day. We encourage you to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you and then to receive him as Lord and Savior. And that's our prayer. And what a great Christmas present that would be for your family if you were to come to faith in Christ. Let's stand. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Bro.